Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another interview episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter. So today I bring in a return guest, my friend, Dr. Mark Bubbs. For those of you who have been following along for quite some time, I've had Dr. Bubbs on the show before to discuss some stuff, most specifically around one of his best-selling books that's called Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, one of the reasons I really like Dr. Bubbs' book and just his view on sports nutrition, training, etc. is He's very aware of where the research is currently sitting in a lot of this stuff, but he isn't beyond reproach to the degree where he thinks the science is settled. So he's also looking into experiencing and trying out the next forefront of what we will discover as peak human potential when it comes to sports performance, training, nutrition, health, recovery, mindset, the whole thing. So in peak, he outlines what we think we know and what he thinks we will know is kind of the simple way to put it. I love the book. I mentioned it on the Joe Rogan experience when I was on there last. And uh, it is a book I think everyone who has a mind for health, nutrition and performance should check out at some point in time. So Dr. Bubbs actually has another book coming out pretty soon, which is one of the reasons why I want to chat with him today. And his next book is uh, kind of more designed for an athlete who is just a bit more towards the end of their career maybe we'll say i think 40 plus would be a good target target range there so he just introduces some things that are maybe some variances there uh, which is actually another interesting part about his book peak is it does look at kind of the variance between say someone who is a professional athlete and training solely for that one specific performance versus the person who's out there still giving it their all but having a lot of other life things to juggle along the way so if you're interested in sport medicine sports training holistic medicine physical medicine and rehab uh, dr bubs is a great guy to follow Uh, he also has a podcast called the performance nutrition podcast he's on three seasons right now and that would be a great one to check out if you want to hear a little bit more about what he's up to and the folks he's working with uh, so Dr. Bubbs is coming on to share his info with us today and coming up next on the interview episodes is Ben Patrick. I know a lot of folks listening to this podcast are going to be excited for that one because Ben Patrick is known as the knees over toes guys. He most recently just appeared on the Joe Rogan experience to kind of break down his approach, his philosophy. So for those of you who are looking for a long form version of what his jam is, his background story and things, that's a good spot to check it out. He also did a really long podcast on Mark Bell's Power Project, which I thought was a really interesting listen as well. When Ben and I met up here in Austin, we went through a workout together, which totaled maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then we sat down and recorded a 30-ish minute interview to chat about kind of the hows and whys of that workout. So for those of you looking to either rehab an injury or just strengthen up your things like your knees, hips, ankles, and such, so you are a more resilient athlete, that'll be a fun one to check out down the road. As I've mentioned in a few other episodes, my goal for 2022 is to get a little more consistent with some of the solo episodes. 
So you should see a little bit more frequency with uh, my solo episodes discussing specific topics and questions that you may have. If you have those questions and topics, feel free to reach out to me and uh, let me know what types of things you'd like to hear me discuss on here for those solo topics. It uh, is easiest to get a hold of me, either email hplpodcast at gmail.com or shoot me a note on social medias. My Instagram account is at Zach Bitter, Twitter at ZBitter, Facebook at ZBitter Endurance. So feel free to reach out to me on those if you have any questions or comments related to that or anything related to the podcast. Also coming up on the guest front is Dr. Nick Norwitz. For those of you who tuned in to the Lean Mass Hyper Responder podcast, you'll know that Nick was on there with uh, Dave Feldman. So if you haven't a chance to check that one out, it'd be a cool listen if you're interested in kind of some of the more recent uh, research or maybe perhaps better said, the starting points at the way we look at specific groups of people and health markers and what that maybe means for them. Uh, But I wanted to have Nick on by himself just to chat about his background. Uh, He's a really interesting guy. He had some health issues early on in life that kind of pushed him towards a uh, pretty strict ketogenic diet which he kind of shares the background about and he also talks about his mode of ketogenic nutrition which I think is interesting a lot of times ketogenic diets get uh, some negative press around being quote too restrictive and I kind of think that's a little funny just because in our current food environment you have to be awfully restrictive to be restrictive because there's just so many options in the ketogenic diet I think has enough opportunity to have a lot of versatility in it So Nick shares a little bit about his Mediterranean-based ketogenic diet that he's currently kind of running for him, so his own personal needs. So if you're interested in that, look forward to that one coming out along with some of the future solo episodes. If you enjoy this show, there are some great easy ways to support. Uh, If you want to support non-monetarily, a great way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share these episodes with your friends and family. It is available on all podcast platforms including iTunes and Spotify and it also is available in video format on YouTube. Also on YouTube I am getting more consistent with chopping up the episodes into mini clips so if you're looking to just get a bite-sized idea of what an episode is about or just dive into a specific topic that we talked about on one of the longer form guest interviews that is a great spot to find that. It can also help you decide if you want to check out the full episode there. So if you go look for Human Performance Outliers podcast on YouTube, you can see those. Please like and subscribe there as well. If you want to help support the show monetarily, there are also a few ways to do that. My Patreon page for Human Performance Outliers podcast offers ad-free early release episodes, and you can support the show and get access to that. Or if you just like to give a one-time donation with not a whole lot of hoops to jump over, I have a pretty seamless donation link on my website at zackbetter.com forward slash HPO. You can do a one-time donation with credit or debit through there as well. Another way to support the show is through the show sponsors. For this episode, my friends at Ultimate Direction are supporting the show. Ultimate Direction is my go-to hydration sponsor for all my training, racing, and daily activities that require me to carry more gear and or water along with me. They make a wide array of handhelds that are very ergonomic, so they fit the mold of your hand perfectly. They have some pocket storage in them. Just a great option if you're looking to carry a little extra water along with you, maybe stash your keys or phone in inside it to make it a little easier to get through whatever you're doing. Also belts, which I like to call ergonomic fanny packs. These belts are great for storing water bottles, keys, phones, 
nutrition, anything you want to bring with you that you don't want to hold on to. And vests, if you're bringing a little more than the belts can hold, these vests are great to wear and stuff the extra stuff in and even have a bladder behind you if you need a lot of extra water if you're heading out into the extreme environments. So head over to ultimatedirection.com, check out their stuff. And if you're there, take a peek at their recently launched running apparel. They've got some new running apparel out there as well if you're interested in uh, getting some extra gear for your workout purposes also sponsoring this episode are my friends at buy optimizers and they want to offer you an option to bolster your gut biome and improve immunity one big way to improve immunity is by supporting your gut health so buy optimizers offers a product called biome breakthrough biome breakthrough is a product that contains powerful probiotics and prebiotics as well as one of a kind ingredient called igy max IGY Max is a patented egg-based protein that enhances gut health, reverses damage caused by antibiotics, and even helps with immunity threats. By taking Biome Breakthrough, you can eliminate bad bacteria, feed good bacteria, build up your immunity, and repair your gut lining all at the same time. So you can head to biomebreakthrough.com forward slash human. And if you type in human10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, you'll get 10% off your next order. Biooptimizers has a 365-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked. So if you don't find the product as described for you personally, you can return it, no questions asked, risk-free. All right, folks, those are the show sponsors. You can see all the show sponsors on the landing page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors if you're interested in the discounts they offer and the links that will help direct you to them through the show. All right, so let's jump into the next episode with Dr. Mark Buds. All right, folks, welcome back to what is going to actually be one of the first of a few podcasts of the new year for 2022. I am uh, joined by a return guest, uh, Dr. Mark Bubbs. Dr. Mark Bubbs, welcome back on HBO Podcast. How's it going, buddy? Good to see you. Good. Yeah, you too. It's, uh, you know, I'm getting used to counting visuals through screens as being seeing people after the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> the whole uh, reality now, yeah. <laughs> the screen's good enough. Yeah, yeah, it's what we got. So, uh, well, and for you, you're uh, you're bouncing around quite a bit. I want to say last time that you were on the podcast, you were hanging out mostly in Canada, but I believe you're over in the UK now. Yeah, so I'm uh, kind of split my time between Toronto and over here in the UK, and and so now it's uh, I'm definitely working on my jet lag strategies with, with all the travel. But thankfully, COVID's kind of saved me in the last little while, so that's been that's been good. Yeah, yeah, you. I think. Uh, some of the hurdles that used to be like annoying when it came to travel prior to the pandemic are a little more, a little more easy to get over now that it's like, you're just a little more like thankful that you can actually do it versus seeing it as a big, as a big uh, inconvenience. But uh, yeah. So is, uh, is this a UK portion of what you're doing now? Is that related to basketball still, or is that for other things? It's more family related. Yeah. My wife's British and then oh. and her dad's health took a little bit of a turn. And so we came over here to support and then, uh, you know, a, a pandemic later and we're, we're still, we're still over here, but it's been, uh, it's been great, man. Great experience. Uh, doing a lot of consulting over here in the UK and then, uh, still, still in the West, especially the West coast. So the, definitely the time zones. I'm, I'm really getting sharp on my time zones here across, uh, across all of Europe and the U S yeah. Yeah. Learning, learning when your, your work window is versus where we used to be is uh, one thing you got to learn when you do the remote 
the remote work. <laughs> uh, especially for a morning person, I've had to shift to being sort of more of a night owl now. So that's been a transition. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, one thing I was excited to uh, talk to you about is, uh, well, it's, there's a f- bunch of things I'm excited to talk to you about, but uh, I wanted to chat to you a bit about just some of the stuff that you've kind of put out there into the the book world and as well as a coach uh, around peak which we talked about a bit on the last episode you're on but you've also kind of added to that if I'm not mistaken with peak 40 which I believe is like a little bit more of a it's a little more of a I would call it like an abbreviated not abbreviated version but a shorter kind of short form yeah short form of the first book and skewed a little more towards what we could maybe consider like an aging athlete or an athlete who is uh, at least peaked and is maybe a little bit past their prime. Yeah. I mean, effectively, you know, peak was the deep dive, you know, the, the 13 and a half hour audible listen where we got into everything around athletic performance. And from that effectively, I had a lot of coaches and practitioners kind of asking me, Hey, listen, you know, I'm busy. I got kids at home, uh, works busy. What, what can I do? What are some of the, what are the two or three things I can do to, to improve my health or to, upgrade my nutrition. And so that got the wheels turning and then basically what led to peak in the sense of, you know, how can we provide some, some guidelines, you know, a blueprint to help people out that, you know, maybe it won't necessarily take them all the way home, but we'll give them sort of 60, 70, 80% of, of, of the benefits that they need. And, and that idea of how can we really just really simplify this back to this most simplest form. And so, you know, that, that's what led to peak. And the funny part, once I started diving into some of the research around even, you know, what we call midlife, which is basically from your mid thirties onwards. So some of the people listening might be surprised to, to realize that they're category categorized as being in midlife. But, uh, <laughs> but that was surprising as well, because it's like, you know, we talk about performance mindset, as you know, is a huge part of performance. And then there's this weird thing that happens in midlife uh, apparently is there's a professor, David Blanchflower out at Dartmouth university. who looked at this happiness scale across the world, right? About 130 odd countries. And, and he actually found that in, in, in midlife between 41 to 47, which is actually a pretty darn long little stretch. We tend to see this, this U shaped happiness curve. So that's the low point. And so, you know, it's, it got, it gets you thinking when you think about athletic performance and overtraining, Right. If somebody's overtraining, they have low mood and low libido, aches and pains, and they're they're not feeling their best. And we know that's from you know training too much, training too intense, or or, or worse yet, both. Right. But in in life, for a lot of folks who are coaches or working and kids at home, it's not the training load necessarily. It's just the life load. Right. It's all the stuff in their life that's acting like like the training, which is you know they're struggling to recover from because they're nutrition is not on point or their movements not on point or a lot of the, the sleep and stress piece. So, so that was really surprising because I'm sure as you see, like once people can't, once the mindset starts to go, it's tough to get people motivated to make the changes. And it then starts to, you know, they get stuck on that loop where all of a sudden now, you know, aches and pains, inflammation. And, and, and the funny part is even fit individuals, right? People who are fit in their twenties or thirties, let's say work gets busy or, or kids at home and all that, that type of thing. It can be tough too. Cause if you used to be really fit and you're not anymore, sometimes that, that can feel like Mount Everest as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. You touched on a couple points that I think that we should dive into a little bit here. And one of those 
was just this idea of kind of like overtraining and what constitutes overtraining. Uh, it could, I'm, I'm guessing it's not a very clean definition as these tend, <laughs> tend to be when you have a variety of different things that can impact it. But one thing I found interesting about overtraining when I started looking more into it was, you know, my initial thought, and I think a lot of people's initial thoughts is overtraining is simply just doing too much training. But in reality, it fits along the same lines as stress management, where you can look at things as being stressful, emotionally stressful, physically stressful uh, from a variety of different things. And they all kind of get programmed into that stress load the same way, regardless whether it's from exercise, poor nutrition, poor sleep, like something that happened emotionally at work or with family members and friends and things like that. Same thing with overtraining, right? Like it can be a scenario where you're not necessarily doing too much exercise or too intense exercise. You're just doing too much given your current lifestyle or the habits that you're carrying along in your lifestyle. hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's what I was writing about in, in peak with the, you know, Prof Larson's athletes fit, but not healthy. And, and mm-hmm. this idea that like, you know, athlete fitness and athlete health are, are two different buckets and, and we can perform at these really high levels, but at what cost? And so, you know, like you said, you see now in elite sport and, you know, NFL, NBA, NHL, these sports where 20 years ago, there's no way they were taking mental and emotional stress as part of your training load, right? It was like, who cares? Shut up, go practice, go lift. Deal with whereas, it. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, yeah. Whereas now we understand that, that that's taxing the system. And so, you know, athletes get it more from certain inputs and then, you know, athletes are people too. So they, they have kids and jobs and everything else um, if they're not professional, but uh, you know, coaches in midlife, all these, these inputs then are, are stressors. And, and like you said, it's not always because you're exercising too much or too intense. It's, it's what, are, what is the totality of all these inputs? And for that individual, are you meeting that all those demands with the, the sufficient sleep that you need? with the energy intake that you need from your nutrition, protein intake, et cetera. We can talk, you know, micronutrients. Are you getting that recovery? And, and then that, that, that mindset piece of, of where, you know, where is your head at amongst all of this? Because some people can, in amidst that storm, still bring the energy and feel good. And other people get impacted by it a lot more. And, and it starts to then, you know, they might even still perform sort of well in their training, but, you know, at home, they're not the person they want to be or, or, you know, that, that type of thing. And so those are always the little canary in the coal mines that tell you that, Hey, we need to revisit this athlete's food and, and training uh, program and some of these lifestyle factors because something's not, uh, you know, not on point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the interesting things I find just being both a coach and an athlete is for myself and some of the folks that I work with that have a little more of an opportunity to live like a professional athlete. That's kind of one, I don't want to say one type of program because there's plenty of variance within that group itself, but it is a fair bit difference or maybe a little more, a little bigger of a gap between say that group and uh, the group of folks I work with who very much are, working a full-time job or career outside completely irrelevant to the running side of things, have a family and all everything that comes with that, a very specific schedule. And you know, one thing I have on my my coaching questionnaire for my 
my individualized clients is let me know what your schedule looks like from a stress standpoint, because I want to know if Tuesday is the most stressful day you have at work, I'm not going to throw the most stressful workout on that day too. And if Friday is the least stressful day in your week, maybe that's a good day to, you know, throw a little more at you from the training side of things is, uh, am I, am I oversimplifying it a bit? Or is that sort of like the lens, the way you should be looking at kind of the stress balance or uh, training load balance in relation to the other things that can contribute to it? Hundred percent. I think it's it's an interesting how even yeah an individual do they have kids at home or not? You know that impacts the amount of hours we have in the day. What does their job entail? I mean, I think for me with men, I, I started asking as well, how busy are you? Mm-hmm. Or even this works with type A's, I mean women as well, because sometimes when we just ask about stress levels, it's like, oh, I'm not stressed. You know, I, I cope well. People, we, we want to take on that that persona, and that's there's benefit to that. But then we also need to know like. Hey, walk me through a walk me through a typical day, and when it starts at five a.m. and doesn't end until midnight, and there's you know client drinks at eight p.m. or nine p.m. or whatnot, then it's like okay, well we gotta figure out. To your point, let's figure out the best days where we can stress the system the most, and let's be smart with how we program because I think th- those are the clients that can sometimes if they're just cutting and pasting a program from some elite, you know marathoner or triathlete and sticking it onto their lifestyle. I'm sure you see this all the time. Then all of a sudden we get into problems six, eight, 12 weeks down the road because it's not taking all these other factors into consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's almost kind of like a the same conversation. I think we touched on a little bit the last time you were on when we looked at this blood sugar response in uh, like pro, I believe it was hundred kilometer racers versus yeah yeah mm -hmm. they were just looking at kind of their response to uh the fueling they were doing and it was almost like i think going into the study it was almost this question of like we're going to mitigate like glucose drop or blood sugar drop that's the whole goal that's the the problem we have to solve and at the end with the results produced it was more about finding a balance where you know, you don't want to go too low, but you also don't want to go too high. And it wasn't always as clean as everyone do this and you'll be fine. It was like the athletes that were more professional based needed to kind of follow a little bit of a different protocol than say the person who is doing it for fun and just trying to, uh, still have their best race, but they know they're doing it within the context of a more typical lifestyle than a professional athlete's lifestyle. hundred percent. I mean, this is, this is one where sometimes I use the analogy of like a fire with my clients of you know, professional athlete or elite athlete, that fire is hot. So we got to keep putting those logs, that energy, the carbohydrates, the glucose in there because they're burning it up real quick. And it actually doesn't have an impact on, you know, oftentimes we'll see in a certain part of the Twitter sphere of, of this adverse effect if we're consuming too much of these simple sugars or carbohydrates, but it really does depend on, on what the athlete's burning in that session. Like you saw in that CGM where, yeah, if you're top end, we got to put enough fuel in to keep you going. But to your point, if you're not top end, then we're going to be over fueling. And now it's like with that log analogy, you know, if ever been camping, you put two, three, too many logs on the fire. What happens, right? The fire goes out and that's when you get people struggling with, you know, they start to bonk and the energy, you know, drops significantly. And so I think that's one where, um, and I'm sure you see this, but uh, Andy Jones, who did the, the break, the sub two breaking two with uh, Eliad Kachoge he told a story in one of his talks of, of, you know, one of his colleagues, a friend of his was a, you know, a reporter or a writer, really fit guy, but, but a, an amateur. 
And so he came in to get tested before the pros would come in and they had him on the treadmill and they're increasing the speed and he got to a speed and he, you know, he couldn't keep up and he was done for the day. And then of course the, the professionals come in and they start warming up just below where he couldn't even go anymore. And then they, from there, they go all the way up well past that. And so, you know, for me, that was a great story because it really highlights that we're dealing with different, you know, a different system altogether. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of times people get a little hung up in the weeds with like a specific race distance. And then they're looking at it as well, with, for this type of race, you need to feel this way for this type of one, you do it this way. And then, you know, you have some variance as you move through like the wide range we have nowadays between like shorter, like three kilometer races up to like 24 hour events and 200 milers and things like that in yeah. the ultra running world. But even that there's a lot of variance between let's say the front and the back of the pack, because if, um, you know, if, if it's taking someone, you know, 12 hours to run hundred miles versus 24 hours, those are two very different events at that point, uh, yeah. you know, from an intensity standpoint and also a mental standpoint. And then because of all that, a fueling standpoint, so yeah. you kind of have two different equations when you, when you start looking at it through the variety of different, uh, different finishing times and experiences people are going to have out there on these different events, stuff like that. Yeah. And like marathons, right? I mean, if you're coming in at two hours, 10, two hours, 20, and then the general public's coming in at four to five hours, you know, we got a totally different race, like, you know, and this is where, you know, sometimes I find it a little disappointing in the sense that some clients train up for these events, hoping to lose some weight and get fitter and, and improve their health. And they come out of it barely losing any weight. And that's, you know, the, the clear indication that we've had the wrong fueling strategy for that individual, because with that significant increase in energy expenditure, because a lot of people aren't moving nearly as much. And then all of a sudden, you know, as you know, come into these big training blocks to gear up six months, eight months for a marathon and we're barely losing any weight. And so I think that's one where, you know, again, I'm sure you see a lot of still too many coaches holding on to a lot of these, you know, this is what you should do. This is quote unquote evidence-based, but you know, in a, we're not applying it in the right context because if we have an individual who needs to lose 30 or 40 pounds, we need to be fueling differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Context is everything. And I think even, I think sometimes people fall for the mistake of adding some context, but not nearly enough to get real specific with things. So they are asking a question without providing the framework that's required for you to actually answer the question. And uh, I had a conversation earlier about this very thing where it was, like uh, kind of where's the application, if at all, for a low carbohydrate diet within the context of ultra marathon. And then that kind of raveled into like, well, how would you feel differently for a 50 kilometer race versus a 200 mile race? So like kind of two ends of the extreme within the ultra running world. And then, and then on top of that, it was like, you know, we got to that point. It's like, okay, we got some context there, but there's still really not enough context to start to get really specific with numbers. In my opinion, on that because you have these different strategies that I think for me personally, I think there's good application for, for them all. And we need to look at these as tools and find out which tool matches the athlete or the person and their goals and their contacts the best to get them to where they want to be. And on the elite side, I think uh, Kipchoge would probably fall under this, this category is kind of like a train your gut style of uh, preparing. Yeah. And when you think about it, you know, running 26.2 miles in roughly two hours, pushing 
was probably like almost 94, 95% of his lactate threshold for that duration of time, which is just freakish to imagine because the average person is going to maybe be able to push their lactate threshold for 45, 60 minutes. And he's just so well-trained and fit and dialed into his profession that he can do it for, you know, almost do it for two hours. That type of person in a sport that is that specific and really interesting to think about because it's, I say this all the time, but it's like the marathon at the elite level is just far enough where you can really do some damage into your muscle glycogen. So you're going to probably have to fuel, but it is just short enough where you are going to be able to go fast enough to really actually, no matter what your diet is, be tapping into that, into that glucose supply. So you got this weird combination of just like massive oxygen demand, uh, a fuel source in, in glucose that is going to just take a little less, a few less steps to, you know, get that energy to your, your working muscles, therefore require less oxygen. It ends up being this kind of like this storm where like a train your gut strategy, I can totally see why that would be kind of a standard practice within elite marathoners. But then we get to the groups that you were talking about, like someone's running a four or five hour marathon or someone who's not running a marathon at all and running a 50 mile or a hundred mile or an ultra marathon. Now, all of a sudden we have to ask like, first of all, can everyone actually train their gut? Is this something that we know well enough as in like, all you got to do is do the program and you'll be fine. Or is this something where half the people are going to thrive under it and the other half are just going to be puking and yeah. having, having, having Bring things come out of every hole imaginable. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the X factor, isn't it? I mean, how do people feel on it? Especially when you get to that general public and, and ultra marathons. I mean, if in their day-to-day life now they really feel like they're getting these blood sugar highs and lows and constant bloating and reacting to these foods that they're eating, you know, okay, well, we got to find the nuances you mentioned within that to figure out, is this even the right strategy? Is there a level of the strategy or do we just decide, Hey, for this individual, we don't really need to train the gut. We just need to get them fitter and be able to maintain, you know, pace over that distance. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the ways I've tried to describe it, and I'd be curious if you think I'm in the right direction here or way off is like, rather than looking at it as like carbs versus no carbs or moderate high carbohydrate versus low carbohydrate and that sort of thing. It's just, let's put everyone in the same camp or the same pool, which is in these longer events, everyone's goal is defend muscle glycogen, right? Like we want to be in a position where at the end of the race, we have preserved enough muscle glycogen to feel like you can finish strong versus like you're just hanging on for deal life and the wheels are coming off. So if we're all in the same camp there, then it's, then it just becomes about, well, what amount of fuel is going to be required for each individual to defend their muscle glycogen. And intuitively it feels like to me that someone who is finding a spot where their carbohydrates are neither too low nor too high that they're producing high enough fat oxidation rates that they can at least get ballpark figures as to like how much carbohydrate are they going to need to take in per hour during a X race uh, versus the next person. And that's where you're going to maybe see a little bit of range where someone who has like higher fat oxidation rates or the ratios of carbs to fat at race intensity is a little more uh, skewed towards fats can probably get away with fueling a little less. Whereas the person who is skewed, maybe a little higher to carb versus fat will have to be able to take in a little more fuel, but either way, their goal is defending that muscle glycogen. Is that something that is uh, more or less accurate? Yeah. I mean, it's, 
you know, at the end of the day, like you said, it's just, if, if it's a competition, who, who can run the fastest and, and yeah. which fuel we're going to put in is dependent on how fast that person is and what their goals are. Cause we know as you start to increase exercise intensity, the reliance on carbohydrate and glycogen dramatically increases. And so this gets really interesting when we look at recreational clients, because if we have, you know, with a fit athlete, they're already fit and lean. And so the, whilst we're still going to have some training nutrition versus competition nutrition, it's not nearly going to be as dramatic uh, a shift between, Hey, this client wants to lose 20 or they, they need to lose 20 or 30 pounds and they want to run the event because then we're going to start off with our programming really with, with purposely strategically, you know, in a, in a planned way, reducing energy intake. And, and oftentimes it's around carbohydrate. Um, although if you start going crazy with the amount of fats, then the overall energy starts to go up and we can get into a problem there. But, but that's a way to then start to bring body weight down because Again, if we're putting eight times body weight down for every heel strike, well, geez, it's going to matter if we're running at 220 pounds versus 180 pounds. Um, and so I think that's where it gets kind of fascinating when we're dealing with recreational runners, because there's, there's sort of a lot more things that we need to think about, particularly when we look at even just, you know, how are their knees and their back and, and, and generally their glucose control, because if they struggle with if they're in their forties or fifties and they're already struggling with glucose control, we definitely need to, you know, that's going to add another layer on top of how we're going to fuel them. And so um, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting, um, you know, continuum when we go from that really sedentary person to the sort of recreational to recreational elite to your athletes and then your elite athletes, just how that feeling can change. And, you know, the common thread being that, Hey, aerobic fitness is one of the best predictors of healthy aging and longevity. Like we need to build a level of aerobic fitness. And there's so many people in this kind of sedentary camp, or even just people who used to be fit and now life's busy and they're not as fit of, you know, and especially when we get into like the, you know, the fibromyalgias and all of these chronic fatigues, if we could just rebuild a base level of fitness and get those more mitochondria going, that solves a lot of problems. I mean, even when we look at gut issues in folks with dysbiosis or these chronic gut concerns and having work with practitioners who find a focus just in those areas, it's amazing how, if we just restore a fitness level to a lot of these people, you know, things get 50% better just, just from that. And so, you know, there's that health element to it in terms of that, uh, you know, that fitness, that aerobic fitness, and then as we're talking about here, as we start to push and push and push and push and push towards that, that knife's edge of, of elite performance, then we get into this, you know, Hey, training the gut is great for hitting that Olympic or world record, but there is a little bit of a cost from a health standpoint. So we've got to be a little, a little bit cautious or strategic in how we apply those things. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode is sponsored by Bioptimizers biome breakthrough and by ultimate directions hydration packs bottles and belts head over to zachbitter.com forward slash hpo sponsors for details links and discounts yeah and i think on the other side of the spectrum from training your gut you get essentially uh the absence of carbohydrate almost altogether where it's uh you get this i would put strict ketogenic diets into this camp just because the yep. carbohydrate is so low that it's basically negligible. Um, even though they have their, uh, 
they're um kind of uh zero carb groups too who uh you know they're they're even more extreme i guess in the sense they're as best they can eliminating the macronutrient altogether and with that i think you kind of have a similar situation occurring but from the other side where yeah your fat oxidation rates are probably through the roof you probably have some of the highest scores on the charts if you go in and get it tested but you're also potentially compromising your body's ability to be able to defend glucose at all during an event if you're never using it and never putting that into your system during training in your day-to-day -day life like what happens then when you say pop a gel at uh you know mile 20 of a marathon or something like that is your body going to actually be able to process and use that efficiently enough since that kind of machinery has more or less been downregulated in order to upregulate the fat at the, the fat metabolization side of things yeah i mean i mean trent sellingworth who's uh csi canada's work yeah years ago showed that right i mean if we start to downregulate we downregulate pdh and now we can't use the carbohydrates as effectively and it's like well wait a minute that's my fifth gear mm -hmm. um and so sometimes I'll, I'll use the analogy of, uh, you know, like clubs in a golf bag, like there's 14 clubs in your golf bag for a reason, you know, you can hit a five iron all the way around the course if you want, but if a, if a pitching wedge in one hand or in the example that we're giving, if you've never hit a driver for two months and now you've got to step up on the last hole and hit a driver to win, you're probably not going to hit it very well. So we, we need to just be training these things up in spots and certain clients will have natural things that they enjoy more or that they, they, they're more uh, drawn towards. And some of those clients who are very low carb, who again, maybe have more weight they're holding onto might not reach very high top speeds. And so, Hey, it's, you know, we might not be sacrificing too much, but we'll still get some benefit from saying, Hey, can we put some carbohydrate in, in certain spots? But uh, yeah, it, it's so context specific. And that's why, you know, as you know, when you look on the, the internet, we can kind of turn ourselves in circles constantly with the, you know, people defending a certain point, because as soon as you just change part of that question, then the answer likely changes as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you intentionally leave out part of the question, then you, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, exactly. you, get, you get whatever answer you want then and <laughs> you go with it. So, or the people it, who ask questions that aren't really asking questions, they're just wanting to get to their answer. That's a yeah. you're like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it gets interesting. I think uh, I find this stuff all fascinating. At the end of the day, I think it's like uh, it's kind of fun to to play around with it and listen to what everyone else's strategies have been and and look at the variables Same. too. Because because you have like a situation that you described, which I see a fair bit more often now than I maybe did earlier on. Which is, you know, I'll I'll be working with somebody who is pretty strict low carb, strict ketogenic. And, you know, they'll ultimately be doing something like a half marathon or a marathon and they run a PR by a fairly large margin. And in their mind, it's like, oh, clearly carbohydrates were the problem. Clearly you don't need carbohydrates to maximize performance. Why isn't Kipchoge just going strict keto? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I PR'd, why can't he? And in yeah. reality, it's like what you said earlier, like uh, someone like Kipchoge has got everything so dialed in that like for him, he can't pull the lever on weight loss for improvement. He can't pull the lever on more training to get more fit. Those levers have been pulled thoroughly. So for him, yeah. it's like he needs to, you know, what's left. yeah, what's left to do. And for him, it might be, be doing some things that would be considered extreme to the average person in terms of the amount of carbohydrates he's going to take in the percentage or ratios of carbohydrates to fats and proteins. He's going to have even his day-to-day -day diet, uh, I had Dr. Mike Nelson on a couple of times. We talked about this and he said, 
the hard part about that approach really is you're so one dimensional on the carb side. You're kind of like a sports car at that point where if you get injured or take time off, it's like you're revving that engine in neutral and you don't really need to be doing that. Like you could be easily driving around at a lower intensity and using, using fat as a more primary fuel source, but you can't always control that with things like injury and lifestyle and, and all that other stuff uh, for the average person. Uh, but you can when you're, you're an Olympic gold medalist. So again, we have the context side of the, <laughs> the equation. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. And if you use my golf analogy again, it's like that 12 handicapper going back to like the, the U S open tees and be like, all right, I'm ready to play. Like, what are you even doing back there? Like, you're not, you don't have the skills to be able to, you know, you can't hit it far enough. You can't hit the right shots. And so it's like, we're, we're trying to put a square peg into a round hole at that point. Right. It's like that those elite people need it to be able to perform at that level. Like you said, cause the margins are so small and it doesn't make it, you know, it's funny how we try to justify the, the, the recreational person's trying to say, well, that's a silly strategy because it doesn't work for me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's just great. There's just so much nuance with, with, within who we're talking about and mm -hmm. you can win in a lot of different ways. Yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, I want to kind of move on a little bit from this topic onto some other yeah. stuff too. Uh, so this is kind of like the nutrition one, at least, the uh, somewhat intra-race and lifestyle, but also just nutrition in general. I think there's like probably two other main ones you could maybe make a argument for a fourth in my opinion of just like what are the big rocks you want to address and nutrition sleep and consistent training at your personal threshold so like i like to call it micro stressing like it doesn't matter if your friend is running 100 miles a week if you've never ran 40 then you probably shouldn't just parrot their training you need to <laughs> yeah. start where you're at and consistently micro stress and then maybe someday you'll be where they're at like uh, but uh those three things when you nail sleep and recovery i tend to put those kind of into the same category but obviously you can get good sleep and then neglect recovery uh but then it kind of also bleeds into consistent training or proper training then. And then the nutrition one. And the fourth one I sometimes think about is just like mindset or mental things. And yep. that's one that I think is kind of more interesting one. Cause it's just a little newer. I mean, we've kind of banged the sleep, the nutrition and the consistent proper programming plenty, but the mindset seems to be kind of more like the new frontier of like, what can we do to improve our mental game so that, when we are asked to perform, we can really leverage that good sleep and recovery, that good training and that good nutrition. Yeah. I mean, mindset's a fascinating one. Like you said, we've, we've mined sleep, we've mined nutrition. I mean, there's obviously still gains to be made in these areas, but, uh, but they're more marginal gains when we look at even recovery because, you know, the, the body of knowledge has increased so dramatically in the last you know decade or decade and a half. And, and mindset becomes really interesting because we have the day-to-day -day mindset that one brings to their life to be able to have kind of the, uh, you know, the attitude and the, the outlook to be able to have, to train and be consistent and all these types of things. And then you have competition day where, you know, the mindset shifts a little bit and you hear different sports psychs and performance, mental performance coaches talk about that, you know, being a, in basketball, like being the assassin on the court, but being the nice guy off the court or gal, right? Because if you behave in a certain way, when you're 
in competition, if you're to behave that way out of competition, it's, it's not really a healthy way to be, um, to be interacting because it's so self-involved and so conflict oriented, but it does when you're between the lines, you know, it's, it's the Kobe Bryant's, the Michael Jordan's, the Tiger Woods, the Roger Federer's, the Serena Williams, these athletes who can really bring that level of intensity. And so for me, that's, that's fascinating because, you know, even at the highest level athletes struggle with both of those aspects sometimes because they've been always really good at something. And it's only when they get to the highest level that now they're actually confronting the fact that they're, you know, middle of the pack or back of the pack or on the bench. And that, you know, that starts to rattle one's identity, right? Something that we don't even think about until it's like, well, Hey, if you're not the fastest person in your group, or if you're not the best basketball player or whatever it is, you know, who are you then? Mm -hmm. And you see this a lot with retired athletes, right? I mean, you see this when all of a sudden um, they get away from their sport and now it's, you know, they're back to the real world, so to speak. So, you know, there's that to me becomes interesting because this athlete health part is human first supporting health becomes really key because we know that if you don't sleep enough, it becomes more difficult to disengage from negative thoughts, right? If we're having you know, 60 to 80,000 thoughts or somewhere in there a day, we're going to struggle if we're, you know, getting stuck into some of these loops where we're catastrophizing or, or, or struggling to overcome things. And you know, glucose control, inflammation, all of these things start to impact our overall mental health. If, if you're struggling with those things, things like anxiety or depression, you're more likely to experience. And, and unfortunately today, I mean, it's great to connect for podcasts like this, but we know that obviously the more we spend time online and the likelihood of a lot of these anxieties and lower moods start to, to percolate up as well. And so I think the fascinating thing becomes in this attention economy, how do we bookend these times for, for silence and self-reflection and a chance to, to really think about what's important to us and our values? Because ultimately that helps to, to orient the behaviors, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's where endurance sports, tr- tremendous in the sense of, you know, you go out for a run. Hey, it's obviously great to listen to music and everything else, but you see a lot of general public gravitating to that in midlife because it is a moment to sort of a get away from all the madness and everything else. And now you can actually just be, you know, in your head, so to speak. And I imagine you see that a lot with the ultra marathoners as well, right? You just, it's like rock climbing or some of these other endeavors where just that the length of it, the, the repetition, you know, creates a headspace that, that, that people really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting point. I think I, I was thinking about this the other day when it comes to music and how that kind of influences both positively and negatively performance. And, you know, for me on one hand, I kind of feel the boost and I see it on the charts of my training. Like if I'm listening to a catchy high rhythm song, when I'm trying to do like a speed workout or something, uh, it, it becomes like this tool that I can kind of pull or this lever I can pull to maybe eke out a little bit of extra like push during, during that workout or feel I'm a little more consistent than maybe I would be otherwise. But if I'm sitting there and listening to that type of music on my easy run days, on my long run days, on my speed workout days and everything in between, now all of a sudden that becomes kind of something that I almost need to have, or I feel like without it, I'm weak or I'm, I'm vulnerable. I'm, I can't hit my, 
my previous norm, I guess, is maybe what you would call it. So I find myself kind of strategically leaving the headphones at home from some time to time too. And it is kind of refreshing because you have this like kind of little bit of angst when you first head out the door, you're like, do I really oh, want man. to do this? Yeah. <laughs> Can I really run two oh, hours without nothing. ACDC <laughs> blaring in my headphones? Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then you get out there and you get moving. And I usually I'll get like 10 minutes in. I'm just like, maybe I should do this more often. I'm actually like paying attention to the things around me. I'm seeing things I normally would have missed. And, you know, I'll be on a route I've done like dozens of times. I'm like, I've never seen that before. And it's amazing yeah. how distracted you can make yourself with all the stuff that we do have available to us. And at a certain point, when you have that much available resources, I think you have to make sure you're using them. Same thing with food, right? We can eat basically whatever we want, whenever we want. At a certain point, you got to get around to actually saying, well, what do I actually need versus what I want? And how do I consistently do that the, the right things enough times that it's rewarding me as much as I am getting immediately rewarded by grabbing whatever looks the best on, on the countertop. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous area of research. Now you see, you know, whether it's NBA or NFL, you're using music in the warm up, like you said, like, we're chilling everybody out. This is the music tempo. Now we're in practice. Music's going to do a certain thing. Post-practice music changes again. And so there's a lot of cool stuff coming out about how that really does impact, you know, nervous system and, and, and motivation and other things. And yeah, with the whole boundary thing, I mean, we could, we could all be listening to podcasts and working forever now, right? We're all zooming at home and you could watch Netflix forever, I guess, because there's an endless stream of, uh, and so how do we set some of these boundaries? I think that's where, you know, if we circle this back to that whole kind of midlife discussion, whether it's a coach or a busy professional or someone with kids at home is that's when people start to struggle. It's when these boundaries get frayed and all of a sudden we're having a half a bottle of wine and we're staying up an extra hour. And now we feel a little bit more sluggish the next morning and there's a bit more coffee and all, you know, our kind of rhythm gets thrown off and it's amazing how, you know, as a one-off, it doesn't matter, but then it starts to, to really impact the whole, your daily typical rhythms. And I'm sure we've all experienced it since the last year and a half or two of COVID of just how it can really start to impact how you feel physically as well as mentally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's actually kind of funny. One of the, one of the guys who's been on this podcast, I follow on, on Instagram and Twitter, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. He's got like all these funny memes that kind of try to highlight these points or make it a little easier to kind of digest. And he put one up today that was, I think it was something like uh, how to lower energy and become depressed starter pack. And it was like a four part picture. One was like this lady laying in bed, staring at her smartphone screen. And then it was like a bunch of junk food and sodas and like a bunch of other things that are going to like feel good in the moment or create a dopamine response in the short term. But ultimately, if you're just doing those things nonstop all day, you're going to get to a point where you start waking up and it's like, why am I so low energy? I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything that should make me feel this way. But then when you start piecing together all the small things you're doing, you're like, wow, I'm really sabotaging myself for hours at a time. It's bonkers these days. I mean, I have some clients who are, you know, professionals that are spending 45 minutes in the morning scrolling on social media. And to your point, I mean, it's having these big trickle down effects on how they feel and motivation. And so, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a crazy world. The good thing is, uh, you know, bringing it up, but being aware of it's kind of the first thing, isn't it? Cause we sort of just drift down this sort of pattern. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, geez, wait mm -hmm. a minute. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a total boiling frog situation, right? Like, yeah, you, there you, go. you introduce one, you're like, Oh, this isn't too bad. And then before you know it, you've got a dozen coping mechanisms that are not really necessarily good for you. Yeah. Uh, 
I want to circle back a little bit to the music side of things because you mentioned something I found interesting or I was thinking about, but I just haven't really looked into it or tried it in any detail myself is, um, you know, cutting the music off altogether is one thing, like just going out there with no headphones and anything like that. But the style of music is a whole nother kind of level to it. So my thought is like, there probably is a path forward to have some sort of music or some sort of listening happening when you're working out, but maybe the types you pick is going to be the, the more strategic thing. So like, are there types of music that serve a little bit more as kind of like background noise in the sense where they actually increase your awareness of your surroundings versus distract you from it? Kind of similar to like, I think of like some people will use when they go to bed at night, like ambient noise type machines that help them calm down, settle down, fall asleep. And without that, it's actually harder for them to fall asleep. Is this just another crutch or is this something that you can actually maximize what we're looking to do with that addition? Yeah, this is, I mean, really fascinating space because there's, there's new tech being developed around, you know, measuring heart rate and HRV and using the music. And as it senses where you're at in terms of your typical patterns, or if you're above or below, it will start to then change whether it's the visual inputs or the music to then impact the nervous system and the heart rate and the HRV. And so, you know, these things now for the general public, I mean, this is now we're going down the rabbit hole. So I'm sure that, you know, we don't necessarily need this, this level of, uh, but it does highlight the point of, of the impact that it does have. So I remember reading studies years ago around just loud music, depleting magnesium stores. And so, you know, if you're a heavy coffee drinker and we're getting a, making adrenaline from the caffeine, that's going to tax magnesium. We're busy all day. We're listening to loud music. Like all of a sudden we're going to have much more likely to be having insufficient levels. And for a lot of these micronutrients, it's really hard to just run a blood test to say if you're deficient or not, because, you know, what's in the tissue and what's in the blood are often, you know, quite different. And so when we look at just questionnaires or symptoms of trying to, to gauge some of these things, you know, th these are just looking at the person's behaviors and whatnot becomes a big part of it. And, you know, when it comes, when it comes back to music, I think it's a, you know, we got to think about what we're, especially in the evening time, to your point around workouts, especially if you're an endurance athlete, because you're spending a lot of time, a lot of hours in the week. And I think that can be a really nice way to push yourself in those sessions where you're meant to push yourself, which is really what separates a lot of the best from kind of the the middle of the pack, isn't it? That ability to really be able to push hard on the, on the hard workouts and then be able to pull it back on the, on when we're supposed to go slower and long, you know, you, you see people that are pushing too hard and, and getting glycolytic pretty, pretty quick. And I'm sure when the favorite song comes on the playlist, it's like you said, it's tough to, it's tough to keep it in second or third gear. Yeah, that's where you kind of have that outlier mile pop up on the, the Strava app afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, what was going on there? You could kind of figure out which ones were the most upbeat songs and which ones weren't. Uh, yeah, another interesting thing uh, kind of along, along those lines, I think, is just uh, the caffeine side of stuff and the micronutrient side of stuff. So like with, um, you know, it's it, you, you hear a lot of this. I think it's like, it's kind of a, what I think is just another example of there's some middle ground here where on one hand you get all the marketing from, you know, every company who has an offering out there that wants you to buy this, that, or the other supplement. And uh, I think ob obviously brands want you to use their entire catalog all day, every day. Uh, yeah. But at a certain point, there are going to be things that 
probably are useful for you to buy and purchase at the individual level, or in some cases, maybe even population level, if there's certain things missing in everyone's diet. Mm-hmm. And then there's, uh, you know, there, there's like, how far to one side of the spectrum do you end up going? Because on one side, you get the marketing and the companies wanting you to buy all their supplements. On the other side, you hear people saying like, just eat a good balanced nutritious diet and the rest will take care of itself. Don't bother taking any supplements. Uh, what is your general thought on that with like the athletes you've worked with? I'm actually somewhat interested in both kind of the professional as well as kind of the, the, the average person, yeah. if there's any variance there. I mean, if we start with caffeine before we kind of get into the, maybe the 30,000 foot view, you know, this is one where there was a study done years ago about Starbucks coffee and they assessed the level of caffeine in the different brews from Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like on a Monday and Tuesday, it was about 450 milligrams of caffeine per cup. And then by the time you got to Wednesday or Thursday, it was down to 300 or 325, right? So it's, it's really variable depending on the bean and how it's roasted and all these other components. And so if, if you're someone who's really a recreational elite or elite, you, you need to know how much caffeine is in it. And so this is where having a supplement will give you mm. th- that standardization. So you know exactly how much you're getting. You can you know, we do ideally want to figure out milligrams per kilogram, or you can do it in pounds as well, but, you know, and the research is all done in, in, in kilograms, but, uh, you know, that three milligrams per kg of caffeine being more or less the sweet spot for most people. And then as you're getting more elite, you can push up towards that four five, six milligrams per kg per day, but you've obviously over time, I've got to watch out because most of these studies are done over a month or eight weeks. And so Mm -hmm. if you're pushing that high over months and months or years, then it can really, uh, you know, impact recovery, impact sleep, especially if you're having it later in the day. So, so that's, that's one to think about. And for some people, obviously, you know, when you take gels or if you chew gum, you're going to get that that buccal uptake and which is a bit quicker, um, actually much quicker, like 15, 20 minutes. So, you know, the gums and stuff can be a good strategy for, for certain people as well, if they want to have a quicker hit rather than having to wait typically that, you know, that 45 or 60 minutes to reach peak levels in the blood. And with respect to supplementation, um, I wasn't sure if there's a specific nutrient, but if we look at just overall, you know, food first approach is great, but you know, some of the scientists and and performance nutritionists out there would be like, well, it's a you know, of course you need to eat to be alive, right? So we're always going to have a food first approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, the more elite you are, you don't want to be leaving any, we just talked before about Eliab Kachoga, how there's very little areas to mine. And so if we can get an extra benefit by adding things to the system, then, you know, by all means, let's, let's go for it. I think where we get into trouble, if you're in the general public is all of a sudden you're walking around with six or eight tubs of things <laughs> and you can't remember why you're taking them or how much you're taking and these types of things. And so, you know, I think the more active someone is, we've got to think about being able to replenish things, you know, particularly things like B vitamins, you know, we talked about magnesium, ensuring you're getting enough minerals in, I think minerals sometimes get forgotten because we're so interested in, in, in vitamins. They tend to dominate the conversation. And so, you know, the foods that we eat today, yeah, the soils have less minerals than they did a few generations ago. And so, you know, what is zinc, iron, selenium? These are key minerals that are involved in your immune function. And we know that as endurance athletes, just by the nature of the training, you're going to be taxing your immune system a little more heavily. 
right? If you're pushing towards that performance edge. And so, you know, ensuring protein intake, ensuring energy intake, looking at some of these minerals like your iron, your zinc, your selenium to make sure that you have, you know, adequate status, reviewing the diet, things like that. Those are, you know, those are pretty important. And for things like protein, it's more like portable nutrition, right? I mean, people struggle. I'm sure you see this. People aren't going to cook all day long. And if they're not ordering a food delivery service or something prepackaged, well, how do we get this in a really convenient way? And so, you know, that's where, whether it's protein or carbohydrate, those things can be pretty handy too. And, and yeah, so I, I wish there was maybe a one, the one size fits all approach, but, you know, I, I don't think you need to spend huge amounts on, on, on certain things. You know, if you see people who are spending, you know, their diets suck, but they're spending $200 a month in yeah. supplements. It's like, okay, well, all right, we need to rethink that because that doesn't make any sense. Um, but, but finding that, that middle ground and um, for most people are going to benefit a little bit from having a bit of support just because life stressful, training stressful, and then we just typically don't sleep enough. Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say if you're eating uh, canned tuna and saltine crackers in order to afford your $200 a month uh, supplement regime, you, you might be better off yeah, it, moving exactly. or shuffling some things around a bit and, and buying some, some foods that are a little more fortified. Well, uh, once you get to page two of the supplement list, it's always <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, interesting stuff, I think. I do want to rewind back a little bit to the caffeine side of things. I find this yeah. really interesting, especially when it comes to like the long-term effects on recovery or sleep quality. Uh, sleep quality makes perfect sense to me because I think most people like the mistake they're making is they're drinking caffeine throughout the course of the day versus cutting off somewhere in the AM hours and letting that kind of clear the system. Or one thing I pay attention to now actually is if I drink caffeine and then do a hard workout or any workout really probably less of an issue than if I say, drink that same amount of caffeine, sit around all day. It's just not going to get cleared out of my system quite as fast when I'm sedentary versus when I'm very active. So knowing like, what is my caffeine threshold on the off season versus the peak training phase and that sort of thing. But what that kind of leads into is uh, how much do we know about the caffeine impact and recovery being just due to the sleep disturbances versus it actually having any sort of like direct impact on uh, our body's ability to actually repair the broken down muscles and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. And I mean, effectively we're getting a sympathetic response from the caffeine, right? And so we're, we're cracking the whip or pushing the gas pedal down, if you will. And again, from strength based athletes or physique based athletes to team sport athletes, to endurance athletes, you know, we have these sort of different buckets. We know that you know, the volume and the duration intensity of the endurance training can, can be taxing to the nervous system. And so in this is where you typically see a lot of the overtraining type syndromes classically are seen more in endurance athletes than let's say team sport or, or even strength-based. And so that in and of itself, we need to really have that focus on what we talked about earlier of, you know, Prof Larson's study around athletes fit, but not healthy. We need to really build athlete health out to be able to be resilient and to be able to maintain health and immunity. And so, you know, if we're consuming so much caffeine that it's starting to be too big a burden on the nervous system and we're not being able to sleep as deeply. And then the people who will get impacted by this are the slow metabolizers of caffeine, or as, as Dr. Nancy Guest found in her work, like these ultra slow metabolizers, these people that really 
get impacted. It, it lasts a long time in their, in their bloodstream. And they actually, you know, you get that subsection of folks that actually get performance decrements from having the caffeine. And sometimes people don't realize that either. So we've got to, to your point, circle back and say, well, Hey, where are we using it in the day? Are we getting some benefits? Let's, let's look at some of these training logs and see what kind of effect we're getting from actually adding it in versus not having it. Um, because if we're going to use it on competition day, you know, we've got research now to show that there isn't this habituation. You can still have it quite a bit and, and perform well, even though some camps will say, well, let's take a break for four or five days and then reintroduce. So, you know, that can be something to experiment with. I think if, if you've got a, if someone's listening in or a coach, if you've got an athlete who is tired and run down and is a quote unquote coffee lover, just make them cut it out for a week, you know, maybe even two weeks. Obviously, try to pick, you know, a, a time in the training program that's not going to totally derail things. But this is one of those subjective ways. See how they feel. Like, do they feel completely horrible and terrible? Well, you know, caffeine's a drug. So mm-hmm. I think there might be we're getting some withdrawal symptoms and we need to, to reboot a little bit. And you know, that can be a good way then to figure out, okay, how, how much do we need on a day-to-day basis? How much can we, how much can we push it to get benefit in some of these sessions? And, and do we need it in all the sessions? Because if there are a few that are really the key ones, let's be really strategic with how we're applying it. And that way we can kind of get the biggest bang for our buck without, without really, uh, you know, burning that candle down so much on both ends that the athletes just struggling to, to rest, recover and repair. Mm-hmm. Do you know, is there any information on like signs and symptoms of overdoing it? at the individual level in the short term versus the long term. Because when I think about just like recovery implications, when it comes to too much caffeine, I think of it kind of surfacing a little bit down the road where it can be maybe difficult to pinpoint caffeine as the culprit. But is there a point where like, if I discovered 200 milligrams of caffeine before my workout is going to give me that extra throttle to nail the workout. But if I go to 400, is there a situation where now I'm actually going to like really notice, like I crash versus uh, actually get any real uptick from energy from that? Or is it pretty linear in that the more caffeine you take in, in the short term, the more shot of a cannon you're going to be at least for the time being. Well, well, again, it depends on that, how quickly one metabolizes it. And, uh, so there's a little bit of, uh, you know, detective work that needs to be done there to be able to Mm -hmm. see how you respond. And then again, it's more that overall, how often are we applying that? Because if we're if, if applying that 400 and we're doing that three times a week, pushes us up towards that top end of six milligrams per kg of caffeine. This is where, you know, even in the DSM five, which is the, you know, the medical diagnostic Bible for, for mental health conditions, that's going to be causing anxiety if we start to exceed that in terms of a dose of caffeine. And so you talk about, do we see things immediately in the short term? If it's around exercise, maybe not, because you might actually get some real performance benefits. I mean, you see some strength and conditioning data where it's like 10 milligrams yeah. per kg. And it's like, wow, that would be, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to do that for very long. Um, but down the road, you know, do you start seeing your clients getting a bit edgy or, or struggling to relax or they can't turn off? You know, that's, that's going to be some of those little warning signs, especially if they're already a personality type that's gravitating towards a lot of spending time on, on social media or being drawn towards that because those two combined together just, you know, just fries the nervous system pretty quick and you're going to be, you know, struggling to recover. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. It's, it's just interesting stuff to consider. I mean, I think it's all, 
you know, we get into these situations where, you know, life gets busy and, you know, naps aren't an option, but a cup of coffee is, or the energy <laughs> yeah, is. For sure, and, for sure. And, and then, you know, you flip open the phone and look on social media when you're feeling a little tired and thinking about skipping your workout because you need more recovery than you do stimulus and you see someone nailing their workout and all of a sudden you're like, all right, give me that that caffeine. I'm going out and getting this done. And you can make otherwise a good motivator, a bad one in all these different scenarios that are now available to us. Well, that's a big topic of conversation on, you know, when guys are getting treated in team sport on the, on the tables, post-practice and things, because they're meant to be decompressing and what are they all doing? But they're all on their phones too, right? <laughs> at the same time. So it's like, all right, how do we, how do we navigate this? And, and now you get what they call nomophobia, which is basically if you take someone's phone away, you know, you see this more in college students, I think it was something like 80% in one of the studies of if, if they don't have their phone then the levels of anxiety, you know, dramatically increase. And so it's like, geez, we're damned if we do and, uh, and damned if we don't. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about the phone for me is if I decide, okay, I'm leaving the phone at home, or if I go out for a run, I'm like, I'm not bringing the phone with me. There's like this visceral response immediately, but after a few minutes, there's like this almost sense of relief where it's like, oh, now I'm far enough away from that device where it's no longer has its grasp on me. And now I actually feel better. And like, I feel like getting getting those experiences frequently enough to remind yourself that that does happen. And that really, you only got to white knuckle a couple minutes before you get past that hard part. And eventually, hopefully you have a situation set up where it's just not really calling you that, that deeply, but, um, yeah, it's so it, weird when you're of the age where you remember phones being stuck to the wall too, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> definitely. Mm-hmm. You go home and you be like, "Oh, there's a message on the answering machine. I wonder if my friend called and wants to go and play football or something like that." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to think of it, and, and yeah, and then again, what's going to be the difference between the generation that doesn't have that experience at all, where you know, from the first day they can remember there was a phone in someone's hand, if not theirs and tablets and screens and all these other things that, that really kind of make, you know, I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but make parenting just that much more of a challenge. There's like, there's one more thing that you have to kind of think about or monitor or uh, control when it comes to your kids exposure to different, different stimulus throughout their, their growth and development. Yeah. I mean, it's really a knife's edge with like it, the amazing things it can do. And then as we all know, the, 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 the holes you can sink into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's almost like, I don't know why this, and maybe this has, and it's just escaped me in certain districts, but it seems to me that like the real, e- or I shouldn't say easy, but the, the best simplest way to eliminate a huge part of that burden would just be a scenario where you don't really have phones at schools. It's like you have these blocks of times where the, the kids have generally accepted that that's where they belong for the most part uh, for their, for their betterment or worse. Uh, and it's a kind of like a convenient time. I would think where it's like, you don't really need them to be having phones during that time frame. If there's like a technological component to the, to the lesson plan or something like that is the school's probably got the resources to implement that without them needing their own connected device all the time anyway. And it just seems like it would be a great washout period. So kids could experience what it's like to not have these devices attached to them all the time without it negatively impacting their social life in a way where they feel like they're the only ones not getting access to it, but their friends are. Yeah. And it's interesting because over the COVID period, it's like there's more and more homework on the tablets and everything else. So yeah, just what you mentioned sort of being amplified and it's uh, it's going to be an interesting one to see how how parents and schools and everyone figures out yeah the best way to go Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. Um, one, one last thing, I don't want to keep you too long because I know it's a little later for you over, over in the UK than it is for me here in, in Austin, but, uh, uh, with the, the continuous glucose monitors is something that's been getting more and more popular. I think the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to put one on for a few weeks here and there and see things that are happening. And one of the more interesting things I noticed with it was on one two-week stint, I actually had the opportunity to kind of deviate from what otherwise would be a fairly structured day-to-day life. And part of that was I ended up like sleeping like three hours that night. And, uh, I didn't even train in the morning after that I had took an off day, but, uh, that CGM monitor was going berserk basically anytime I would eat anything. Uh, what have you seen with those in relation to just like sleep quality and glucose response, as well as possibly caffeine and glucose response when it comes to these 24 seven monitors, are they telling us anything about that with, uh, with that level of surveillance? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the fitter you are, obviously there's a bit more noise in the sense that the sensor's not sensitive enough to be picking up some of these changes as they would do someone who's, you know, pre-diabetic or, or struggling. So some of these gross changes that you get, like you mentioned, when you lack sleep are really interesting because it just reinforces what we kind of maybe know, but especially with a lot of the old dogma of just sweat it out the next day and <laughs> get up and train. Um, there's really interesting work out of Bath University around breakfast and you get these really different effects with let's say a pre-diabetic individuals training in a fasted state versus fit individuals and then as you mentioned if you're lacking sleep you actually get much more pronounced glucose responses right and so it does become this question of thinking about hey how are we actually going to train today you know should i be training should i deviate to something else you know do some mobility some light stretching sit in the sauna, you know, do something different. Um, and you actually see that with caffeine as well. You know, if you, the natural inclination when we're really tired and struggling is to go for that cup of coffee right off the bat, but you see this big jump in, in blood sugar levels. This is some work from James Betts at Bath university. And, and that's a problem if it's happening all the time. And again, if you're struggling with your weight and your metabolic health, that's going to become more pronounced. And the cool thing with that study was that if you just waited if you just ate your breakfast and then waited to have your caffeine after that, it really attenuated that response. Mm. And so, you know, that's a nice little tip for people. And I think from what you mentioned there, I think that's definitely one where it's nice for, mm-hmm. and we know all those certain client types that are just going to go out and do it regardless. And it's like, I'm supposed to do this, this day, you know, I don't care if I was up all night and mm-hmm. two bottles of wine in, I'm going to get up and, and train this way today. And you know, when you've got some of that kind of data, you can show them just the effects. And it's like, okay, well, was it really that important? Because you might've achieved a certain level, but it's taxed the system in a certain way that maybe now we've derailed the week or the block or whatever else. And so there's gotta be a real important reason to be, to be going out there rather than just the old school, like, Hey, let's just get up and sweat it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Save that for competition day when off season starts the next day. (laughs) There, There you go. Right. Like, so what's the, I forgot who it was. Treat your body like a used car on race day. Just yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the time to let it rip. Uh, awesome. I think um, yeah, those are a lot of the stuff that I wanted to chat about and uh, uh, kind of hear your take on. Uh, is there any other topics you wanted to hit on that we missed? No, man. That was that was great. I appreciate it. Always always good to connect and uh, and hear your insights as well. And 
what have you got uh, teed up here for 2022 on the on the training and competition front? Yeah, you know, it was uh, it's interesting. I think uh, I haven't picked like an exact race schedule yet, but I do kind of know the direction I'm going to head. So it's kind of start the process and then start lining things up a little bit as uh, as my fitness starts coming around. I took a little bit longer of an off season this year than I know than I normally do. So I'm just trying to be mindful of where I'm at versus where maybe I would have been in previous years. But I think I'm going to do like a pretty flat runnable hundred miler around mid early June. So my hope would be to do like some 50 K hundred K type of stuff in the lead up to that. And then kind of really peak for that one. And that'd be kind of the first half of the year. This year's a little interesting. Uh, World hundred kilometers is in September over in Berlin, Germany. And cool. I think that'd be a cool thing to go to. I still have to get a qualifier, which I think I could probably do if I put a little bit of attention into a fast hundred K in the March, yeah. April timeframe, but I'm also kind of like a little on the fence as to whether the, the event will even get off the ground uh, with you know, just uh, still uncertainty, even yeah. it's, it's amazing to be thinking that way after two years <laughs> that there's still uncertainty, it's but like, here we are. Ever end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's one of those things where you like, you go through all the hassle of qualifying and they'll let you know like a month or two before. So, oh, by the way, we're canceling world hundred K's. Uh, hey, we'll see you in two years. <laughs> and then it's like, Oh, I would have picked a different race schedule then, but um there's enough opportunities to kind of jump in stuff too especially when you're talking about like kind of more controlled terrain versus very specific courses like on the mountain side of things so uh yeah, yeah if, if that falls through i'll probably target another fairly runnable 100 mile or somewhere in the second half of the year and then maybe a 24 hour or something like that at the very end of the year if, if that starts to call me but um yeah that's awesome. kind of we'll have to I'll have to get you back on my podcast to uh yeah yeah we should do the training and everything else yeah, it'd be, it'd be fun. It'd be fun to talk about that sort of stuff on, on your side of things. But before I let you go, Dr. Bugs, if you want to share with the listeners where they can find you either online, social media, um, and then your books. Yeah, for sure. Listen, the, the first book was, was called peak. It's a deeper dive in athletic performance. So if you're interested in that side, you can check that out and I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I've got a unique last name. So if you look up at Dr. Bubs on Twitter, Instagram, you'll find me, uh, the website's drbubs.com. And, uh, and the book we talked about was called peak 40, the, the book geared towards, you know, that simplified approach. How can we do that? You know, do that minimum effective dose, be able to get some pretty good bang for our buck in terms of, uh, improving, you know, health and midlife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And before I let you go, I'll put one quick plug in for peak because it is one of my favorite uh, books out there, partly because I feel like it does about as good a job as any in terms of just laying out what we know, but also kind of giving a preview as here's some interesting frontiers of what we think is maybe happening. Here's what we know, the relative strength of it and all that stuff. So you get a pretty well-rounded idea of kind of where the research was at historically, how it's evolved, how it's changed, what possibly could be changing versus kind of giving you this situation that I think we oftentimes see nowadays where it's like, I'm going to tell you all the good things about this and none of the bad things. And then whatever the counter to mine is, I'm going to tell you all the bad things about theirs and none of the good yeah. things. And then people are left with, uh, you know, half the, half the information that they really need to make an educated decision. So, uh, props to you for, for putting that piece out there and, um, I'll be sure to link to that stuff in the show notes. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been nice to see the reaction in, in, in pro sports and various fields and stuff. So, uh, yeah, appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks again for taking some time out of your day to chat. No worries, man. Anytime. 
Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks. If you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.